You're listening to the 90-10 rule. 90% business. 10% music. Today on the 90-10 rule, we discuss using your resources, knowing your worth, even if that doesn't include getting paid at first, creating your place in the industry, and looking internationally. But first, this. Yeah. That's right, babe. That's right, babe. That's right, babe. Yeah. That's right, babe. You be acting like you won't want it. You be acting like you don't want it. How you gonna lie to me? Don't lie, stay a hundred and put something on it. There's something like you on top of me right now. Breathing on me and I'm breathing on you. But it's more like making magic We be stopping traffic We be going this hard Oh, but you already knew that But you already knew that You, you already knew that, girl You already knew that But you already knew that uh, you, you probably knew that, girl Yeah Here on the 9010. It's almost like a coming of age kind of thing. Yeah. Like, like you're going into a, a grocery store or something and some kid is back in groceries. He's like, can I walk you to your car, sir? And you're like, yeah. Me, sir. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or like or like in my old yeah, neighborhood. 
Yeah, right. Or like in my old neighborhood, uh, there was a little kid and he called me Mr. Corey. And then his dad was like, oh, yep, that's how you know you're that age. You know what I'm saying? When, you know, when, <laughs> when the seven-year-old calls you Mr. whatever your name is and you be like, wait a minute. No, I'm, <laughs> I don't feel like Mr. I'm not that. Yeah, I'm. I'm not that guy yet. No, like I'm still going to the club, but I'm still, you know, hanging out. Like, how, when did I become that guy? And especially, and it's really crazy for me because I don't have any children of my own. I have two stepchildren now. You know, who are teenagers, which is a whole different thing. You know, you may as well be old as Methuselah to them. Right. You know, they think you've been around for forever and you don't know shit. So you know, I. It's just it's weird. Yeah. Listen, as we were talking actually about um, people finding you on Google and learning your resume before they meet you, that's kind of what we were into. And we kind of just started you abruptly there. But I wanted to introduce Corey Webb. Uh, He's been through a lot of stuff in the music industry. So I won't even try to pretend like I can say that in one sentence, all the things he's been through. But we're just going to get to know him today and, you know, go into his world a little bit. I'm here with Kevin Davis, as usual. Yeah. I'm Brian Jennings. And of course, our guest, Corey Webb. Hey, hey, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, no problem, man. We're honored to have you here. So just give us kind of an idea. Take us back to the beginning, man. What was your passion? How did you love it? What you know? What was the thing that bit you and made you want to do this? Oh, wow. Uh, I think uh, I was, I'm probably watching the Grammys uh, or the American Music Awards or some award show. And I'm realizing, you know, all the artists that go up, I want to thank such and so, such and so. I want to thank Tommy Mottola, Donnie Einer, blah, 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 Jimmy Iovine, like all these people. And I'm like, who the hell are all these people? Like, they must be the one that make it happen. Because, you know, I'm I'm watching how artists, you know, are the one-hit wonders here today, gone tomorrow. I'm like, damn, what happened to such and so, such and so? You know, I used to like them. And now they, you know, you don't have nothing. So then it just started to sink in with me like, well, damn. But everybody keeps thanking these same people. My favorite artists are thanking these same people. Exactly. Right. And year after year, it's the same people. So all of these people are still around. What the hell do they do? Who are they? Fast forward. I get to college. My freshman year at Alabama State, uh, uh, we're uh, working on planning. You know, I'm, I'm witnessing the, uh, our homecoming concert. That year, it was Gerald Levert, MC Light, and LL Cool J for our homecoming concert. That's, I think, when the bug probably really, really bit me, is when I got a chance to actually see what it really takes to put on a show, right? So, you know, from, you know, the planning and, you know, calling the AV company to to, to build the stage and have all the lights and everything to you know, learning how to fulfill the artist writer and, you know, all that stuff. So then I'm like, whoa, this is real business. Like this is, it takes more than just he up there and he doing it. You know what I mean? So I think that was the fascination. So fast forward again, a couple few few years, I'm out of college and I really, really want to go get in the business. Moved to Atlanta, New Year's Day, 1999. And... I meet this guy named Donald Albright. I have, I was, you know, you know how, you know how Atlanta is, you know, Lenox Mall, Lenox Mall, Lenox Mall is like the spot that's popping. Lenox Mall is where you go. And it just so happens to be that day that they're shooting scenes for TLC's No Scrubs. And I meet this guy named Donald Albright. He has an armful of t-shirts and I said, Hey man, what do you do? 
He said, man, I do promotions. Promotions? What's that? He literally hands me this armload full of T-shirts <laughs> and says, don't come back to me empty-handed. Oh, okay. That was my interest into the music business. That was your first job? That was my first job in the music business. Did you get rid of all the shirts? Of course. <laughs> what else you got? You, you know what I'm saying? And, and so from there, it, it, it became, you know, we developed you know, develop a relationship. And believe it or not, for probably damn near two years, I worked for free. You know, it went, it went from being going to Capital City Plaza uh, on Peachtree, uh, which at the time where LaFace Records was, you know, just being the guy who worked for the independent marketing company that, you know, I was on the street team, you know, the LaFace street team. So it was like, you know, where you have to wait in the lobby, wait for somebody to buzz you up. Then you have to come and wait for somebody to walk you down the hallway to go get your promo product and get you, you know what I'm saying? And then go out and, you know, so you can go out in the streets and go do what you got to do later that night. So... Uh, in the world of promotions, that's how you know you 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 learn really quickly how you have to go build relationships with people. You know, at that time we you know we servicing DJs, we still had records, you know, vinyl records. You know, that's how I met you know Emperor Cersei, DJ Mars, and all those guys. Hey man, let me help you with your crates. You know, you know, you'd meet him at his car, help him get his unload his crates out of his truck. That's how you got into the club, so you could go. You know what I mean? So listen, man, you know, and at that time, the company, the title, the name of the company was called D-Day Entertainment. You know, it was Donald Albright, uh, Deshaun Kennedy, Eddie Solomon, Alex White, uh, uh, and what's my man, Stefan? I forgot Stefan's last name. But anyway, you know, they were all together and they were, they were their own little company, their own little team. That was the first time I ever really saw, like, black people have a business that was thriving, that was doing good. I was like, damn, okay, Atlanta's really living up to the city that people say that it is. Right. You know what I mean? Like, here's an independent street marketing company, you know, that we had, let's see, the accounts were LaFace, Rockefeller, Atlantic, uh, Reebok, you know, you know, and a couple other different companies, um, you know, where we did the street marketing, the grassroots promotion um, for a lot of stuff. Like I remember one year we did a, mar- a marketing campaign with Reebok for the Peachtree Road Race. Uh, and, you know, we handed out just, you know how they had their little cowbells, you know, they ring the little cowbells, you know, at the race or whatever, but they just had the little Reebok, Reebok logo printed on them. And, you know, and you do these little surveys and that sort of thing. And you discover that almost 60% of the race was running Reeboks at a Nike sponsored event. You know what I mean? So, so now you're starting to get into understanding what market research is and understanding what, you know, people want and what consumers want and what businesses have to do, or in, in this case, record companies or, you know, fashion companies, under, you know, to understand who their consumer really is. Yeah, that was the first gig doing that. Uh, I've interned for my man, uh, Leotis Clyburn, who at the time was at uh, Air Control, Ground Control Music, which is the publishing house that, you know, everybody knows a lot of that, you know, uh, social dev stuff and, you know, even some of the Destiny's Child catalog and all that stuff came through there. Right. Um, and I was, that was simple. I was already out of college and I was just making J cards for the cassette tapes, for the submissions, for these songs by all of their writers that had to go out. I remember, I, I remember typing J cards for Candy, for her stuff. You know what I'm saying? And, and having to, okay, send this out, mail it, you know, and, you know, when you're internist, once you've learned learn what a good restaurants are and how to make good coffee, you know, then that's when somebody will actually teach you something. You know what I mean? Or in the studio environment, same thing. Then you learn to patch bay. You know what I mean? Right. So uh, it, it was that. Then um, 
fast forward to 2001, um, I have a friend, I had a, I met a friend who needed help in the street marketing world. And, uh, it just happened to be, it was at Def Jam South. Uh, you know, and obviously at that time, you know, the biggest artist at Def Jam South was Ludacris and Scarface. Um, however, it was still attached to Def Jam itself. Okay. Then I started going to the office because I lived in Midtown at the time where the office was. And I would just walk up there. Like, what do you need? Just, what are we going to do? I went in there and I was like, they had a storage room where all the product was. And I was like, damn, this shit here is awful. So I just cleaned it all up, organized everything, put it where it needed to be. Then it got to the point to where somebody recognized it and said, hey man, this dude needs, we need to give him a job. And so that went to that thing. Let's see, Luda was out on the anger management tour with, uh, with Eminem. You know, it was back during the whole Bill O'Reilly bull job and all of that. And I did tour support. You know, when they, when they had all the tour booklets and everything that needed to go out on the road, I was the guy who packed all that stuff up and sent it out to whatever city they were at, the street teams in the other markets, whatever, whatever it was that they needed. You know, I was like the guy in the warehouse who fulfilled all the orders for all the promo product that needed to go out or the tour merchandise that needed to go out. Right. So, okay. So, so now, uh, give, give, just to make sure we have perspective here, how many years now have you been doing this since you got that first gang of t-shirts from- That was from 99 to 01. Okay. So we're, we're talking about about two years time span here. Before I actually started getting a check. And, and, and we're talking about, I just want to make sure- we Before I actually started making like, when I actually got a check that said Universal Music Group, right. Island Def Jam Music Group on it. I yeah. just wanted to put shed some light on the fact that at this to this point, it was not glamorous. Oh, this no. Was, this was not the kind of thing. I didn't have a car. <laughs> like, I was just trying to make it happen. So we're still two years in the making. I just want to make sure we, we brought light to that. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Two years in the making, yeah. Please proceed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> then, you know, it grew to, you know, building a relationship. And then people starting to realize, then I'm starting to realize, wait, I know all these people. Like these people, some of these people are my friends. Like at the time, uh, Erica Gary was the GM at Def Jam South. I don't even know if you remember her. Uh, believe it or not, she went to high school with us. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now I'm looking up like, Erica? Corey? Word? <laughs> okay. And then Erica Muno moves on to greater things. And then, you know, then there's somebody else in place. And then I realized, oh, wait. Luda's best friend is a guy that I went to college with. Two guys I went to college with. Um, uh, my man James and and then uh, that uh, and uh, my friend Willie. You know, uh, I was like, damn, we all we all went to Alabama State together. You know, me and James played in the marching band together. Then I realized, oh wait, that go Arby, aka Lil Fate, Playboy Fate. You know, Luda's hype man. Damn, he went to Alabama State with us too. <laughs> then I'm realizing. Damn, they go Tahid, aka Titty Boy. Well, you now know it's two chains. Right. We all went to school together. Like, oh, okay. So, you know, I'm talking about bumming rides with each other to get back and forth to Atlanta, you know what I'm saying? From from college. Oh, okay. Well, this is easy. This is this is a good fit, because now there's a level of trust that exists. Right. You know, because you're my you're my homie, you're my friend, you know what I mean? Like, you know, we go back. All right, cool. So then the office moves and then, you know, Def Jam South kind of sort of, it's still just an imprint and not a real label. Just It's really DTP. Right. And so uh, the way that I, you know, that Chaka ended up getting me paid was, you know, and man, my, shout out to my man, Sean Williams, Shawnee Lude, you know, he's, he's down in New Orleans now. But um, 
for getting me paid was, all right, he's the guy that's the street team for Def Jam in Atlanta. So I used to go run that. So now that means, you know, Joe Budden is a brand new priority. You know, anything that's Rockefeller, all that, you know, Murder, Inc. stuff, Ja Rule, Ashanti and all that. So I'm working these records too in the clubs and in the streets and doing that sort of thing. Mean, But meanwhile, the priority, quote unquote, is disturbing the peace. That parlays into when Def Jam starts saying, okay, we're going to cease operations this way. We're going to, you know, however the business shakes out and they're going to, you know, DTP has, gets a new office, everything moves, you know, and then Def Jam is like, okay, they're going to, they start trimming the fat, laying everybody off. Chaka came to me and was like, hey man, don't worry about it. Chaka and Luda was like, don't worry about it. I got you. Before, before we get too far away from it. Yeah. Tell us what working the uh, a record means, just to make sure that people understand what that actually entails. Oh, that's a whole conversation by itself. But we just talked about building relationships. And quote, unquote, working a record is really that. It's all about relationships. You mean I can't just, I, I can't just tweet it to you or, or throw it at the back of your head? No. Try that shit if you want to and watch what happens. <laughs> you know, now you know, now living in this in this day and age, you know, the email in it to you, or like you said, tweet it to you. I'll just send you a link for it. For real, dog? Like, the process is still the same, no matter how he's gotta get it. You know what I'm saying? Which is having to build that relationship and credibility with that DJ that he knows that you're bringing him something that's quality all the time. You know, you start, you know, catching a reputation for bringing him whack records. All right, dog, like, really? And mind you, I'm doing this with no money. Now, and keep in mind, you know, there are other people, you know, further higher up in the, in the promotional department chain, you know, who have access to the, quote, the money who spends the dollars. Right. However, at the street level, it's all relationship. Well, let me ask you a question there before you move past that. So then you're saying that the guys are looking for you to bring them quality records. So if you're working for an entity, though, say a Def Jam. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily get to decide which record gets worked. How do you? What was no, the what was no, the negotiation? No, because they give you a that? list. You get it. You get. You have a priority. You know, what I mean, now nine times out of ten, by the time you've gotten to them, they've already heard about whatever it is that you're bringing to them. You know, because you know if you're part of any of these other record pools or 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 DJ organizations and things like that, there's already been a conference call or somebody's already talked to them. But I I would like to think that one of the things that has kind of sort of cemented me and what I'm doing a little bit is um, the priority at that time was this Joe Budden record. It was a record called Pump It Up. And, um, you know, yeah, that record, exactly. And, you know, that's the priority. Yo, we got, you know, so, you know, you're on, you're on the national call, you know, with 36 other markets on the line. And, all right, yo, you know, Corey's down in Atlanta. Yo, we got to get this record popping in Atlanta, man. You know what I'm saying? You know, Kevin is like, yo, we got to get this record going. And even, you know, Russell's putting everything behind it too. You know, Russell still wasn't the president of Def Jam. Kevin Lowes was. However, he was, Russell still had influence and was still putting his hand on certain things, right? So, well, okay. Now, me not knowing. This is, this is now, just quick story, is me, this is my introduction to Frank Ski, actually. You know, Kevin's on, get, Kevin gets on the phone. He's like, yo, Atlanta, make sure Frank get my record. Okay, I didn't know Kevin Lyles and Frank Ski were best friends. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, yo, Frank, I got this record. You know, it was this kid, Joe Budden. Okay, throws the record on. Little did I know, Kevin checks in, you know, into Atlanta. You know, Kevin got family down here. He comes to Atlanta a whole lot. And so... Yeah, man, you know, you, you know, you get you get my record. Oh yeah, 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 this little kid named Goose. 
uh, uh, you know, uh, got me the record. Cool. Got that record cracking. I mean, I think I put probably 30, 40 points on the board with that record. Like, you know, at Mix Show, getting the record going, you know what I'm saying? Record popping in the club. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, this, this, this Corey guy, it seems like he knows, knows what he's doing. So, um, I, but I, I like to think that I've just simply been fortunate uh, in what I do that I've had consistently, I've had, I've delivered hits consistently. You know, not that there was any doing of my own. It's just that I hear this is what's got handed to me and I'm the, just the messenger. You right, know what so I mean? The, but, but working the record, there actually is an art to that as well, oh, though. Oh, absolutely. And that's, and that's what I'm saying. Like, okay, so, so example. Right. Everybody else that comes to the club before me is pumping a DJ full of drinks. He's sending, a, you know, they sending a little stripper chicks over there to him and all that sort of thing. Well, I come with one of these. Bottle of water. Actually, two of them. Do just this. There you go. I got this brand new, this, this, this Jay-Z record. Word? Oh, my God, man. Corey, man, you saved my life. Because he's already drunk. Like, about to yeah. fall on his ass because everybody else has been pumping him full of drinks, trying to get their record going. And I'm the guy who comes and saves his life. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So now they remember you. They remember that. Oh, okay. What you got, man? What you got? He throws the record on, you know, puts it in his headphones, listens to it. All right, man, it ain't going to work for right now, man, but, you know, but I got you. Maybe he'll play it. Maybe he won't. He'll come back to it. But the reality is he remembered that I was the one who bought him a bottle of water. So next night in the club, you know, next club in some other part of town or whatever. Yo, man, what about my record, man? You got my record? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it's early in the club. You know, I would throw it on. Say, oh, yeah, this is kind of dope. Next thing you know, they th- they starting to, throw the- they starting to throw your record on when-, when the dance floor is packed and it's, quote, prime time in the club. Or brand new, such and so, such and so, brand new, 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 new. Bring it back, bring it back. Again, no money. I spent two dollars on a bottle of water. All right, great. And that was my way. Secondly, as a person who would work records, I would always go to the clubs or to the spots that other people wouldn't necessarily frequent. You follow me? Um, I was going to MJQ. I was going to dealing with those quote lesser known DJs. You know what I mean? And yeah, 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 man, I got a mixtape, man. I need, I need you to give me some records. Okay. I mean, I was servicing cats who was damn near just shy of just spinning for themselves in their grandma's basement to make sure that they had a record. But the thing about it is if he, was, if he or she was putting out a mixtape or if they was doing something, if they were publicly playing records, I made sure that they had the records that, that we had going. And what I, what I learned from that is is that those are really the guys, those are really, when they say the streets is talking, those are really the people who are really talking in the streets. Those are the people who are really touching, you know, the kid with his ghetto blaster with the little speakers in the front grill of their car and all of that because that's where they are, you know. Uh, And that's what really, really uh, starts getting some of these records going. And to be honest with you, you know, at that time, it would take like a year before a record, you know, would be like a hit. Yeah. Like, Wow, a, a year. <laughs> You'd be working a record for months, you know, before it really before the label would go. Okay, now we're gonna, as they say, press the button, and you know, there's the marketing push, and you start seeing music videos, and you know, the promotional tours, and all that sort of thing. You know, all that. You know, those days have come and gone now, but um, 
is just working a record is, is, is really about building relationships. It sounds crazy because it's like when, when the new song becomes popular, mm-hmm. uh, nobody really realizes how long it's really exactly working. Like it just seems like, oh, this is what the DJs are playing now. Right. And okay, so yeah, everybody's like right now, everybody's on Fetty Wap and he just kind of came out of nowhere. Or even a better example, um, the, the new Justin Bieber record with you know Diplo and Skrillex. That record was released, and even in this digital age now, it's still, the principle is still the same. That record was released in March. They just dropped the video last Thursday. <laughs> I still haven't heard this record. But understand what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> understand this. The record was, re- was released in March. They just released a video last Thursday. Between Thursday and Sunday, 16 million views on YouTube. Wow. From a record that was released nationally in March. Now, boom, zoom to the moon. Exactly. The, the same thing. So these records are being worked for a period of time right. before they pop. You know what I mean? So there is effort that's put into it and none of it's instant. And it's, it's worse these days because you have all the social media and the internet and that sort of thing. People think that it's instant and it's really not Instant, even in this digital world, it's still not instant. It's like I think what was so uh, amazing to me about listening to you tell your story is that, like, when I think about the different artists who are talented and have told me, like, you know, whatever excuse they gave me about why they aren't on and popping, um, it's it a lot of times they say, Oh, you know, I ain't got the team. Or I don't have the money to be able to do it like that. Well, so it does require for, each of those too. Now let's yeah. not let's not get it twisted. Oh, of course, but I'm I'm listening to you talk about how you did it for no money and how you worked a record for over a year when most time like most artists are not working. Well, their now for let's a let's year. let's now let's let's not be totally naive about my story. I mean, I was handing them handing a DJ Jay Z records. Ja Rule records, Ashanti records. Well, you know what though, but you're right, because even then Ashanti was new. However, Dev Jam as a label was known for producing hits. So I did have that. You know what I'm saying? LaFace was still the a company, you know, that was known for producing hits. You follow what I'm saying? So you kind of sort of still have that brand association that's, you know, that that you get to use. However, it still becomes like, okay, who the hell is this guy? You know. You know, I, I don't care if, you know, if you got the, you know, I'm, I'm handing you gold. It's people, it's, there's still a level of trust that has to exist because what, because, because ultimately what, what ends up happening is the DJ puts his credibility on the line every time he tries something new. He puts his credibility on the line with the listening, with his listening audience. Um, anytime he tries something new, brand new, right? Bring that back. Brand new, brand new. And you can tell when it's when it's so contrived. You can tell when it's forced, and you can tell when it's genuine. You know what I mean? So it's like I don't care how much money you have. I don't care, you know, whatever record company you're from. While you know, and we we could even talk about payola and all that sort of thing. And even if you if even if you're doing that, the relationship still has to exist. You still have to know the gatekeepers. You still have to be able to have relationships. 
that even gets you in the door to even be able to go talk to whomever you need to talk to or to see who you got to see to maneuver the way that you need to. You know, ultimately at the end of the day, you have to protect your reputation at all costs. I actually one time was in a club. It wasn't a very popular club as far as the Atlanta clubs go. Mm-hmm. The DJ actually said prior to playing a song, this guy just brought me this record, so I'm going to give it a try. He literally fronted him because he didn't know the guy and he wasn't willing to put his reputation on the line. Right. But uh, maybe some money had changed hands. I'm not sure. He actually said it, though. He was like, yeah, yeah. this guy just brought me this record. We're going to see how this goes. He didn't even play the whole record. But I mean, they never play the whole record. But right, exactly. He didn't, he didn't even give it a, a full verse. Because if it's whack, like, dude, because 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 the crowd is gonna look at you like, right, like, dog, what are you doing? You know what I'm saying? Right. And then you know, if the crowd starts dwindling, then the promoter or the club manager is gonna start looking at you like, hold on, bro, now you're costing me money, right? You know what I mean? So, you know, why are you in here? You know, it's bad enough that you got in here for free. You ain't spend no money at my bar, like, dog, what are you doing? Right, <laughs> you're an obstacle. So, Chasing okay. my dream. All right, so <laughs> Shaka tells you that we're going to find a way to get you paid. That's where we are. Oh, yeah, I mean, so he did. You know what I mean? So what happens is, uh, you know, when Def Jam starts, you know, starts releasing people and start, you know, changing things, and I, 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 I presume at that time, you know, there were just management changes, leadership changes, you know, Def Jam was, you know, is owned by Universal Music, you know, and all of that stuff. So, you know, how would, you know, they're a big, large, multinational corporation. So, you know, when... Changes start happening, you know, who's always the first to go? Everybody, last hired, first fired, people at the bottom. All right. Chris and Chaka was like, Goose, don't worry about it. I got you. I was like, well, damn. <laughs> you know, it, that, tends, that typically tends to make you loyal to a situation where, you know, when a person looks out for you. You know what I mean? When, when you find yourself in a situation, you know, where, well, damn, what am I going to do for money now? Damn sure don't want to go back to working at the Home Depot. A damn sure hated, you know, you know, MCI, you know, and it just so happened that I was fortunate. Let me let, let me be totally clear. Uh, I was fortunate enough that out of school, I also had a pretty decent paying job. You know, when I was working, when I was working for free, uh, with you know, for a major telecommunications company, um, making a pretty good living. So, believe it or not, you're not the first person to say that, and that's very valuable. You do not need to quit your job to recognize your dream in the music industry. Oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> just like you said, um, it takes money to make money. Absolutely. You know what I mean? You, you know, you have to be able to, to sustain yourself and to, sustain, and to and sustain your lifestyle while you're, quote, chasing the dream. You know, it's kind of foolish if, you know, what, what your mama used to always tell you, you know, you got to have something to fall back on. Well, you know, just what happens at, at that time uh, this major telecommunications company went out of business and I got paid a decent severance package. So I was able to then go pursue my music thing full time because I had some money in the bank, you know, and I, right, let's go do it. And I just, and I went and did it, you know, and parlayed that into a check and then parlayed that into a job. I created my position. I created, I created, you know, what it was that I started doing over there, you know, and, I could probably honestly say I probably did a little bit of everything that needs to be done at a record company. All the way from, you know, being on the street team, the, you know, driving from city to city, you know, promoting to, I'll give you, I'll give you another good example. Uh, if you remember the kid uh, out of St. Louis that DTP had. Uh, Chingy? Yeah, Chingy. I would never forget it. I left, we were leaving out of the club at the time the, 
the, the Def Jam office was behind uh, one of Alex's clubs, uh, the one up there in Midtown. What was it? Visions. Vision. Yeah. yeah. It was my birthday. Drunk as shit. Leaving, you know, leaving the club for my for my birthday. And and uh, my boss tells me, all right, man, uh, here's some money. Take the van. Go meet Chingy in Cincinnati. Wait, what? <laughs> Dog, I'm drunk. Wait, you want me to drive to Cincinnati? Like, what? Huh? <laughs> Yeah, come on, man. Just go. Just go get some coffee. Get some Red Bull, man. You know, go 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 meet you at the end the tour bus in, in Cincinnati. Okay. <laughs> now, mind you, a couple of weeks prior to that, I had told Chaka. I told Chaka like, dog, I don't know about this. I don't. I don't believe in it. And believing it means Chingy. Yeah. Okay. And at the time, uh, the DTP as a group. You know, with Luda and all the, you know, Sean and everybody else as a group had an album out. You know, it was the Golden Grain album. Yeah. And they had a single uh, on the National Security soundtrack. Uh, you know, the movie with Martin Lawrence in it, uh, movie National Security. Right. And that's a funny story too, but I'll tell that later. But Chaka says to me, that's why you do what you do and I do what I do. You go out there and go do what you do. Let me do what I do and watch what I tell you. Okay, I drive to Cincinnati. I get to the I get to the hotel where the tour bus and everything is, and it's Chingy and High Tech on the bus. You know, just chop, you know, chopping it up, talking, blah blah blah. All right, cool. In my mind, I'm thinking, what the hell are we finna? What am I doing? I'm really thinking in my mind, what am I doing out here? And so that was June. I think I came home September from One Night at Visions. We had sold 3.3 million records. We were going from city to city. I remember being at King's Dominion in Virginia and Chingy was doing in the kiddie pool, you know, at the, at the little water park at the kiddie pool, singing that little song for the radio station promo. Like we were literally small town to small town, big town, small town, city to city, station to station, event to event, nonstop. Touching the people. Literally. One by one. Quite literally. Working. Hard. Yeah. I'm Ooh. talking not sleeping. Ooh, that a real work. Dog, I, lo- real I work. logged 54,000 miles on that run. That's crazy. I had to come back to Chalk and be like, all right, dog, you win. Like, okay. I get it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, exactly. And that was the real, real learning lesson. That, and that was a turning point for me, actually, because I got a real opportunity to see how records are, quote, worked at a different level. Right. That's when you get to meet the label reps and the people, you know, who got the relationships with the program directors at the stations and, you know, and, and, and at retail and, and doing the in-stores and understanding, you know, the, the, the marketing at a bigger level, you know, I mean, you know, to under to see how it's it happens at a nat- on a national scale when you when you when you're doing 106 in Park and and MTV when you're doing TRL and you know and all this other stuff and then uh, watching and watching um, you know Chaka and Chris and them really really and you know take the chance when we did the Chicken and Beer tour, you know that was a tour that they did themselves. They put up the money for themselves. That was it was Luda Chingy. David Banner, uh, and this other act out of the West Coast. I want to say it was like Chaos or something like that. I don't remember his name. 
And, you know, we did 33 cities in 42 days. Like, whoa. You know what I mean? Like, what the, you know, and so then it was that moment I had in college when we were doing the homecoming concert, but it was that every night. And then you realize this is work. This is a real job. I remember my mother used to be like, Corey, so when are you going to get a real job? Mom, what do you mean when I'm going to get a real job? Mom, I get a paycheck that says Universal Music Group on it. Like, what are you talking about? Real job. Like, go Google it or something. This is a multinational company, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, that yeah. pays me a check to go do what I do. Like, I get a per diem when I'm on the road. I don't even have to spend my own money to go eat. Like, what are you talking about? My rent's paid. Like, what are you saying? Right. Um, and then, you know, and there were just so many valuable lessons that I learned um, just simply being around, understanding and learning you know, what the A&R department really does, understanding what A&R administration is, you know, and, and then learning publishing and split sheets and, and booking the studio. And like, you know, when you're, when you're at, a, at a, in a small indie label, like, like say a DTP, and, and at, at that time with, that was building and developing a roster, like you really, really realize like, this is business. This ain't fun and games. This is real deal business. And you're playing with somebody else's money that, has got to produce a result, you know, the same way, you know, you go work at FedEx or UPS or, you know, wherever, like you're, you're charged with a task and a responsibility and you got to go do it. And so, you know, while I was at DTP, I still got charged with some of those same tasks I was doing for free, which is, you know, when we moved into a bigger office, I had shelves now then, okay, build me these shelving units. So now I had a place to put all my poster boards, all my CDs, all my stickers, all my, you know, all the vinyl, all, you know, every, I had everything in an orderly fashion. So whenever anybody needed anything, they had it. Right. Okay, the team in Cincinnati needs blah, 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 blah. Okay, the team in, 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 in LA needs yada, yada, yada. You know what I mean? The team in Dallas needs. And so then you become the manager of all of that. And that's logistics, whether you realize it or not at that point now. So now it's like, oh, okay, damn, the budget's 300000 and I got all of this product to manage and ship out and send out and, you know, and, and be mindful of that sort of thing, um, you know, and just make sure that, again, that we touching the people. So, um, yeah. What was, what was the next phase then? So DTP? Yeah, so the next phase after that was... Uh, then I became uh, what they call an artist development representative uh, at Universal Music, uh, you know, and I was as, I was assigned to um, Universal Motown uh, record label, you know. So as an ADR, then you know that's really a marketing position. So it's really not artist development, but for de- in in Universal's philosophy, it's artist development or developing artists, meaning the artist that's new. We were talking about that it takes a year and all that sort of stuff. So I was the guy who had to put together all of the planners and recaps and, and, you know, I bought all the billboards, taxi toppers and bus shelter, you know, uh, um, ads and that sort of thing. The end capture, you know, at the time when, you know, when retail, when record retail was still, you know, around, uh, you know, how you see the big, large cutouts, you know, of the artists at the end of the, you know, of the aisle in the store and all that sort of thing. I was, you know, so then that's what they call P and P price and positioning. So I was the guy who did a lot of that you know, the shelf space and knowing, you know, 
how are we going to put this and going to check to make sure that, you know, the shelf space that the, that the distributor, you know, purchased with the retailer is, you know, that we're getting what we pay for and, you know, and visibility and all that sort of thing. So that was interesting in of, in of itself because working at Universal is no different than if you work at Xerox, IBM, or, you know, in the corporate office at Coca-Cola, like you don't get to see none of the artists. You don't none of that. It's the product. <laughs> Like and that's the term. It's product. There's a wireframe that you fit into. And- exactly. Right. Exactly. You know. Okay. You know. The product is this. There's somebody that's listening right now that cannot picture Universal Music to be like FedEx, but it is. <laughs> On the corporate side of things, it is. Oh, that takes all the glamour off of it, dude. But that's how these companies generate millions of dollars is because if there isn't a system in place for how you market, promote, and the big thing is distribution. That's really the business that Universal is in. They are in the distribution business. There's no, make, make no mistakes about it. They are in the business of distributing music. Music is their commodity. That's their product that they sell, right? Now, we have to understand that the record labels, the record companies are the customer of the distributor, so now it just so happens that some of those record labels are wholly owned subsidiaries of said distributor, but, you know, they really don't give a shit. They make money on record one that ships. After they sell it to Target, Best Buy, you know, JNR and, you know, HMV, all those other places like that. Okay, we made our money. Because guess, guess, guess who, guess where the buybacks come to? They come back to the yeah, artist. Yeah. Back to the record company. Yep. You know, if they if they don't sell, if it doesn't sell, and Target says I need the shelf space for the next new hot thing to occupy this space, we're sending that back. Which is odd that those that still is in record contracts today. It consi- is considering there there's nothing to buy back because there's very little physical material. Uh, but breakage fees are even still in record contracts. Ridiculous. <laughs> do you do you do you understand what breakage fees are? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, for the for the listeners. Okay. Right? Well, for for the listeners, breakage fees is record companies or the distributors. Put in a fee in your record contract for breakage. It sounds just like just what it says, you know, that this physical product, whether it's a CD, vinyl, cassette tape or whatever, they expect that there's going to be a certain amount of these, you know, pieces of product that are not going to make it to their destination, that the shipping company is going to break some of it. So you have to be able to account for it in some sort of way in your, in your business, right? Well, that's a loss. Well, who pays for that? We're not taking that loss. Exactly. Right. The, the record company, no, no, we held up our end of the deal. We pressed it up. We sent it out. We delivered it. We did what we supposed to do. It ain't my fault that it broke. So, like you said, who going to pay for it? So oh, so you going to pay for it. So they pressed up the record and shipped it out and it, it sat in a warehouse somewhere and got hot and melted. And But they don't pay for it. The artist pays for it. That's right. And why that's odd is because there's very little physical media that's going out these days. Exactly. So, yeah. Raping, <laughs> raping you records still exists. Sit down, hanging around my neck. 
Man, let me tell you, record contracts, man, uh, uh, they may as well be indentured servitude. Like, that's like sharecropping. You're, you'll never make enough money to buy your way off the property, off the land, like, unless you really go and have the means to go do it yourself and really control it yourself. Otherwise, um, you know, and that's really the only reason why anybody ever wants to go get a record deal is to go spend somebody else's money. Record companies are like banks. Exactly. It's, a consignment, it's a consignment business. Yeah. So, if, you know, for everybody listening out there who really doesn't understand the consign- uh, what a consignment business is, if you've ever, you ever been to a pawn shop, then that's a consignment business. I have this thing of value. Can you give me some money so I can go do whatever it is I feel like I need to do with this money? You know, most, you know, pay your bills, do whatever. Trick off. <laughs> yeah, go trick off and act like you got money in the club, whatever. I don't care. And then you have to then bring them that money back and then some before you get your Item back. Item back. Right. It's the record business. Okay, so the record it's company. Title loan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, oh, but it but though. but it's a, but it's but the product is your art. Right. So there's a there's a thin line between art and commerce. You feel what I'm saying? And yeah. so many people. Well, this is my art. This is my baby. It's my creation. I made it. Well, product now. Exactly. As soon as you decided to make a dollar at it, it's a commodity. Otherwise, you can stay on the street corner rapping with your friends. Definitely, definitely. So, t- I'm I'm really interested in how you got the idea to start taking this international because I've known you for a while. I know that you do have a focus on the international market. Oh hell yeah! So, t- what 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 sparked your interest? What made you what made you decide that you know what? There's a lot that we're leaving on the table here. Well, it, living in America, we 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 are really in our own little bubble. Believe it or not. Um, America is the largest music market on the planet. So, you know, we buy, sell, distribute, and generate more revenue uh, when it comes to music than anywhere else. So 
living within that microcosm, it's like, okay, it's a crowded space, right? It's, you know, I can't afford to compete with a Def Jam. I can't afford to compete with Interscope, you know what I mean? Or any, you know, any of these other big companies because, you know, they have their roster of artists and they have their, you know, catalog that they own that they go license and generate, uh, you know, other avenues of, of generating money. And so I'm like, well, wait a minute. Let's, so let's, let's back up a little bit. Having, having dealt with um, some of these other record companies, you know, having, having gone, to, uh, um, you know, from DTP to Universal to, you know, coming back to getting into promotions and doing promotions with Interscope and, and you know, Interscope, Geffen, a and and, you know, dealing with, um, you know, folks like, uh, uh, you know, Kevin Black, Keenan Johnson, all those guys, and really learning from them. Uh, and understanding that, you know, other aspects or other avenues in the in the music business, I was like, oh, okay, hmm. I could go do this somewhere else. You know, you go play the game somewhere else. You, you start, you know, looking on the internet, you start Googling, you start learning, you start figuring out, well, wait a minute. How is it that these other international artists can come over here you know, and basically become a one-hit wonder or, you know, hit big where you learn that, damn, they're stars, you know, where they are, you know, and then, then you, st- you start realizing, well, hmm, well, who's the independent guy over there? Who's the independent guy over here? Who's the, so then because you're from America and then particularly because you're from Atlanta, you know, and that has the history that Atlanta has and the reputation that Atlanta has, then you can go other places and, you know, kind of sort of start some of the smoke and mirrors and sell yourself a little bit. And you know, and then and then uh, then then you actually pull it off, and and um, and yeah, that's how you that's how you start going. I mean, for me, the international thing is uh, was really born out of um, the need to grow a business. Uh, myself and a former business partner, uh, we had a business called Mogul Tunes. It was a online um, new music discovery. Uh, sort of thing. And in doing my market research or trying to figure out or trying to learn how we're going to promote this thing, how we're going to reach, what we're going to do, uh, I learn about and I come across this event called Medium or Medium, depending on your dialect. Uh, It happens in the south of France uh, every year. And then I learned that at that time it had been going on for, you know, the last 40 something years. Wait a minute. What is, what, how in the hell I missed this? You know, and this, you know, this big, huge international and it, you know, music thing, you know, if the big Cannes Film Festival that happens, you know, you know, everybody's heard about that, right? If that's that for movies, then Medium is that for music, right? And so I'm, I'm you know, I discover what this, what this, um, what this, uh, this event is. And I'm like, whoa, you mean to tell me I can literally go meet and see, greet, shake hands and network with the music community, the entire planet, basically, in four days uh, than what some people spend entire careers trying to go do. So that first year we went, that was 2008. I spent $13,500 to make that trip. So it's not a cheap thing for two people. Uh, And we know what the hell we were doing. You know, you just, you know, you go, you figure it out, you understand the lay of the land, and then you really, really understand truly what it is, you know, on the back end. And you go, oh my God, this thing is a gold mine. 
And I've been going every year since. Um, and then, you know, the next year, I see all I see, okay, is Chuck D and his attorney. I go again, and then I'm realizing, okay, I'm sitting in on, a, on, a, on a, one of the panels, and the keynote is uh, Peter Gabriel, and two people away from me is Doug Morris. For those of you who don't know who Doug Morris is, Doug Morris is currently the CEO of Sony Music. Um, so in other words, that's L.A. Reid's boss. Do you understand what I'm saying? And he's, right. and he's sitting in the audience taking notes. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, shit, this really is the business of music internationally. Like understanding that this is, we, we live in a global economy and we live in a world where the, this is where it really happens. And, and then, so the year after that, I'm like, oh, look at this. YouTube, Ford Motor Company, Samsung, Ogilvy & Mather, which is a, a big, huge ad agency. Um, um, oh, YouTube partnership. That's where these deals are getting done. Oh, okay. So, you know, so now I'm... I'm I've learned how to navigate it. Now I've really figured it out. Now, now it don't cost me thirteen and a half thousand dollars to go no more. Now, I mean, it's still not a cheap trip, but I'm not spending damn near fifteen grand to go anymore. Um, and then uh, just finally, you know, this year, uh, I really took the leap of faith and really started to go and do things and go try to go broker some deals on my own. Uh, and went and went and did it, and you know, did some did some things in Japan. Uh, South Africa, um, and then uh, even with another artist um, out of, uh, she, let's see, she's Jamaican, but um, she's but she's based in Spain. Freaking amazing. And then, uh, so it's, you know, so some of the deals and some of the things you go do is, you know, for me being a consultant now, and, you know, it becomes about creating a, an, an imprint or an impression for a lot of international acts uh, in the states uh, to be able to break in the United into the U.S. market, um, and even if it's something that's mild, it's another step or another footprint that they now have that they didn't have before. You know, uh, dealing with publishing, you know, licensing. You know, there's, you know, TV shows, films you know, they get released all over the planet that you have opportunities to get placements and generate revenue. It's not just in America. Or even if you do have a major label deal here in America, your deal may not necessarily include international rights or international stuff. You might be able to go and broker a deal. You know, you might be signed to Atlantic here in, here, here in America, but you might be able to go and go do a deal with, say, Gallo Distribution in Africa who has the who owns the license to distribute Warner Music on the continent of Africa. You feel what I'm saying? So go do that deal. Or go have your song placed in the Reebok commercial uh, for the soccer team in, in Cameroon. So you, basically what you're saying in lay terms is, it's layers to this. Oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, thicker than any onion that you know, bro. Yeah, you gotta... And so the thing is, is, is learning how to figure out, A, what you wanna do, and then B, understanding and figuring out how to go navigate it. And so for me, I was fortunate enough that I've, I've made a certain amount of money and, and been fortunate enough, to, again, to still have an occupation, you know, when some of the other stuff is gone, you know, you still got to have something to, to, to sustain you 
So then that way you can afford to go do other things. And so here we are, you know, uh, finally. Um, so to kind of sort of get back to, to the story a little bit then is um, I started my own company um, three years ago. It's called the Web Consulting Group. Um, and I do just that. I'm a consultant, you know, no different than what, say, a general contractor does when it comes to being on a construction site. He knows how to go get the right plumber, the right electrician, the right concrete people to pour the foundation, you know, to pull all those things together in order in order for you to make it happen, for you to build your house or to create your building. It's no different in business, you know, when it comes to having to architect whatever it is, whatever product it is you want to release. So, like, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, like you're, and I'm, I'm saying this more for our, our listeners, mm-hmm. but uh, if I am a musician, because mm-hmm. people always want to, uh, like, s- send their demos in or get you to listen or something like that, and they, they want you to to change their life, go get them a record deal and get the record popping and, you know, make them famous. But you're, so what you're saying is that- as I know a, a lot con- of famous broke people, by the way. Yeah, well, that's a whole nother, that's another episode. Yeah. We'll do that next week. Okay. But, um, so yeah, I mean, you turn the lights on, you make it happen. You run the route and you know how to get it done. Right. Pretty much. And there is a cost associated with doing that. <laughs> but of course, but of course, you know, um, you know, the game is to be sold, not told. Well, everyone, uh, everyone, like, and I think there's a, I mean, definitely a ton of misinformation out there. Oh yeah, and because of what people have seen, they feel like it's an it's an overnight thing, and they can everybody believes in the Cinderella story, right? I think that's the one thing that the music business still has, you know, that and it and it may never go away. I don't know. Um, is is the Cinderella story? Is that somebody heard you singing in some smoky club and he says, "Hey, kid, I think you think you're great. I want to come sign you." Like those days have, are long gone, but the allure of such still exists. However, you know, as, as as long as there's terrestrial radio and somebody to make you feel like that they blowing you up, you know, they think that that's going to equal all the cash, all the you know, the limousines and the and the and the jewelry and the you know popping bottles like that money got to come from somewhere. Well, I kind of like getting the perspective of everyone. So, what do you what do you think the new the new business model is going to be? With so much streaming going on now, and you know a lot oh. less physical sales, what do you think? What do you think the next thing might be? And I don't want you to give away any of your trade secrets or anything, but just kind of you know. I'm gonna tell you broad this. strokes. The 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 chief investment officer. Was her title? Her name is her name was Vanya Schlogel, the lady that was speaking at Medium this year. She's the Vanya. she's the chief. You can go Google it. She's the chief investment officer for Title, which is you know everybody know the new streaming service that Jay Z is heading up and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of people don't realize is that that was a fifty seven million dollar acquisition of a product slash service that already existed that was already in forty seven markets globally. Right. Let's just let that be known. And this is a woman that was hired away from Goldman Sachs. That was nothing more than the casual music listener than <laughs> anybody else. Right. So we have to understand that this is the world that we we'll, that we're living in, and 
she's one of, one of the people that say, hey, whoa, whoa, pump the brakes. If we keep going this way, we're going to be giving it away. Like, hold on, we still want to be able to make some money doing this now. Right. So, you know, it's it's it starts to become um, trying to figure out and understand the monetization of streaming music and then understanding how do we take Pharrell's happy that gets a hundred million plus well, they, well at this point now almost a billion views if it's not more than a billion now and he only makes six thousand dollars yeah which is absolutely ridiculous that's a huge disparity yeah. you know in the revenue that's generated um you know in in the streaming world now because of how companies and all these weird ass calculations that they have, you know, which is fractions upon fractions of a cent uh, that gets, you know, revenue that's generated for all of this exposure. Right. It's so to, to kind of sort of put that in, into a particular context. Um, my wife works for a particular restaurant chain. She's an accountant, you know, so money's what she knows. Um, there was a particular celebrity who. Uh, did something on the Grammys and it became famous and, you know, their company sent out a tweet and the tweet went crazy, right? And she said that um, as a result of that interaction, it was, a, it, would, it would have, had they had to spend the money for what they, for the attention that they got, it would have, it would have equaled about $22 million in, 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 a, in, in an ad campaign. You know the way this whole viral thing took off for them, right? For that particular company, I'm 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 choosing my words carefully because I don't, you know, I don't want necessarily to, you know, speak on certain things. But I, I thought I thought that to be interesting, you know. So here you have a tweet that's worth 22 million, but how does that, you know, how did how do you how do you what's the word um, turn that into real dollars? You how know what I mean? Prove, how do you prove yeah. the value ahead of time? Exactly, precisely. That's what that's what I'm trying to articulate. Is is how do you prove that value? Well, say an ad agency, one of the big multinational ad agencies would say, "Well, hey, if we were to create this amount of impressions, you know, putting this ad campaign out, say, doing an ad buy with NBC. NBC is on seven different cable outlets and it's pumped into 100 million different homes. There's a cost Per impression, that's, you know, that's how they calculate what, you know, your advertising costs. So they figure, you know, if we, if we had to pay to go do that, then that's what it would have cost. Right. So with music and streaming and that sort of thing, those costs are, are, are much lower. It costs you basically nothing almost to pump out that music now. So where's the, where's the money? You know, where do you go get it? From what? It's a file. It's something that, you know, I can now just go send to you and, hey, you got it. So, but if I'm the company that has, that has spent the money to buy the licensing, to amass this collection that I'm going to now offer for a fee or for a subscription, then how, how, as a business, how are we going to keep most of the money in give everybody, you know, make everybody happy so they, you know, they're not beating us up over U.S. copyright law, which hasn't changed in over 40 years, by the way. Um, there you have it. I, I, I just think that 
probably in the next 10 years, music will be free. That's scary, man. I put a Paul, I, I didn't want to say anything for just for dramatic effect. <laughs> <laughs> so then does that mean... That was probably not really answering your question, but, you know, that's just... I think you just scared everybody. So <laughs> so does that... So I'm going to try to save everybody's life because right now they're, they're running around screaming, I can see them. They're, the house is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, I need to call back my old job so can I get my well, job back? Well, well, so here's what you have to do. <laughs> you have to be able to, you know, if, if you cultivate a following then you have to be able to turn that following into revenue, i.e. live performance. That's tough these days in the world of hip-hop when you got a bunch of people who aren't real performers or entertainers. However, let's look at a band like, say, Snarky Puffy, who, without a major label, are consistently on the road, making good money doing what they do, I'm sure, and have a fan base, have a following, and they're selling records. I mean, doing really good. Yeah. You know, on the road, probably 180, 200 days out the year, possibly. You know, if you look, you know, if you look up their tour schedule, you have to figure out other ways other than just selling a record, other than just getting your record on the radio. Hell, they won a Grammy with Layla Hathaway, and you've never heard their record on the radio. So it kind of sounds like you're getting close to the concept of quality over quantity, in a sense? Yes. It's definitely quality over quantity. However, I think nowadays people need to decide what they want out of this business. Do you want to be famous? Or do you want to be able to go out there and make a good living at what it is you love to do? And I think everybody says they want to make a living, but I think behind the scenes, I think no, they, they, want to be famous. they just they want, want to be, be famous. famous. And they think the fame equals the money. And that's the furthest thing from the truth these days. Furthest thing from the truth these days. Absolutely. Um, it's funny. It's funny because even in, in my experience, man, like there are there, like different artists that I've, I've worked with or come to my studio, even if it was to just to rehearse before they went on tour or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, like you'll you'll catch them in the the break room by the vending machine, and you know we start to talk or whatever, and and like some of the the stories that come across, you find out how much of the like how many of the world's like most popular successful artists um, that everyone would look at on stage and go, wow, this person really has it together. I want to trade lives with them when they come off stage. Some of these people be having terrible. Home life situations, Hell like yeah. real day to day life type yeah. shit. Dre Andre three thousand said it best: "If you don't move your feet, then I don't eat." So we like neck to neck, man. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it, it gets gruesome. It gets gruesome. Dog, that's real talk, though. Mm-hmm. But here's another thing: it, there are so in so there are different, so many different revenue streams out there that people just miss out on, or they just simply don't pay attention to whether they know to do it or whether they're afraid to do it. But, you know, how do you expect somebody else to invest in you if you're not willing to invest in yourself? Man, I've tweeted that so many times. I'll give you a great example. Me, you, and you get together. You're artist A, you're artist B, I'm artist C. Shit, man, I want to go perform, dog. What are we going to, you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to get on. Okay. Now now here's the free one. Let's see who's going to do it. Well... Why don't we go to Mr. Club owner, Mr. Club promoter? 
hey, uh, we want to do a show at your spot. How do we do that? Well, we'll sell tickets. And let's do a revenue split on selling the tickets. Let's just say the room holds 300 people. You go sell 300 tickets. You go sell 300 tickets. I'm going to sell 300 tickets. We got six weeks to go promote the show. So three of us pool our money together. We gonna, you know, we decide, I'm just, I'm pulling numbers out of the sky, but let's just say we're going to spend $900, $300 from you, $300 from you, $300 from me. So we're going to buy our little flyers. We're going to spend our little $50 in Google AdSense or Facebook or YouTube or whatever, social media, you know, Twitter, Instagram to promote our product. We're going to get somebody from our, quote, our team to make the little Instagram videos and, you know, do the social media, do that sort of thing. And, you know, you got 5,000 friends on Facebook and you got 10,000 followers on Twitter. And the only thing you're charged with is to sell 100 tickets to your show. Your show. Mm -hmm. So now what happens is if we each are selling 100 tickets, right? Now, Now, two things. I'm not playing to an empty room and I'm playing in front of somebody else's audience. So people who would not have ordinarily have seen me or heard my music are now seeing and hearing my music. Here's the other thing. We decided to, so now that's 900, now you're 900 in on the front end to, to market and promote your event. You sold the tickets at $10 a head. 300, 300, 300 seats, 300 tickets at $10 a head. You made your money back, right? On your initial investment. So now, you know, after maybe after you paid a little more, a couple more expenses, just let, and I'm just saying, if you just did a flat deal, door deal like that with a with a club, then let's say, hmm, you decided to go. We need some merchandise. How you know? How else can we make some more money? This is one thing I never ever understand about hip hop and rap music is like, while we do not do merchandising, I'll never get it. You can go buy a box of seventy two t shirts, you know, and and have them printed. For about three, four hundred bucks. I'm just, again, guesstimating. So, you know, it costs you six, seven dollars a shirt. Go make these shirts. Well, you can merch, you can sell your shirts at the, at, at the venue. Let's just say twenty dollars a shirt. Well, you know, say, you know, nice shirt, got the cool little design, you know, with your name on it and everything. Statistically, the general rule of thumb is that 37% will buy something if you make it available. Because people always want to support you, right? So now you've promoted yourself on the front end, and you got all your friends, family, and other strangers to come to the show. Now they want to have something to remember you by from the show, especially if the show was good, right? Let's just say each of, each of us were good at our show. I just told you 37% will buy something. So now out of the 300 people that showed up, 37% is how much? A little more than 100 people you know, a little more than 120 people mm. bought something at $20 a lick. So now 20 times 100. Now you've made that money. Oh, but wait. So now these people have now become walking billboards. So now, oh, wait, but then there's still the music. Here's my new CD. Buy my CD. CD's $10 a piece, $20 a piece. So I'll just say $10 a piece. CD's $10 a piece. You sold 100 CDs. Great, we made that money. Oh, but wait, let's sweeten the pot. You buy my album, get a free mixtape. So now, here, here's the three of you who just made 
close to five grand in one night for six week worth six weeks worth of work. And then you go do that someplace else. And then you go do it again. And you go do it again. And the next thing you know, go out of town. Draw a little circle around the radius of, of where you live. Drive an hour. Do it again. Two-hour circle. Do it again. Come back. Start over. Do it again. Before you know it, in six months to a year, Doug, you could easily be the support act for the larger major act now because now you're a draw. People know who you are. But nobody's willing to put in the work. work. Or, if you, or if you go make that five grand, don't go trick it off at Magic City and thinking that you're the shit now because you didn't have a decent show. No. Pay for your next event. Yeah, go pay for your next event. Like, I don't understand why people don't want to go do that. It's called working. <laughs> oh, I remember, because you want somebody else to go pay for it and do it for you. <laughs> Sign me. Put me on. Yeah, yeah. I got somebody in my inbox the other day that was kind of like, and like, I don't know this guy from a can of paint. Like, I, I've never right. met this person. Oh, I, just, I get them all the time, too. Online. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and it coming to it's like, yeah, hey, you know, if you're not so busy, you know, how about you um, change my life and uh, sure, you know, I, I could send I you some of to do my for music. The afternoon, I'll change your life. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll, I'll spend my time listening to your music, and you know, we can sit in the studio and smoke weed all day, and uh, yeah, man, we pumping out these hits. Really? No, <laughs> sorry, that's not work. Yeah, that's not work. Corey, we really appreciate you taking time out and coming to sit with us, man. Do you want to let people know how to get in touch with you? Um, it's real simple. Um, CoreyWeb.com. There you have it. Ding. Once again, we appreciate you coming by. Hey, Brian. Thanks, man. I appreciate you. Visit us at the 9010rule.com. That's 9010rule.com.